You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. And with that, the B.C. legislature returns for what could be a very unusual 41st Parliament. Good evening. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's a throne speech that could mark the beginning of the end for the B.C. Liberal government. Some of the details were leaked ahead of time, but here are three brand new promises today. The B.C. Liberals pledging to eliminate tolls on the Portman Bridge. They're also promising to fast-track the replacement of the Patullo Bridge. And they're offering free tuition for children in care. So dramatic changes, obviously, for the B.C. Liberals, ripping pages out of the NDP and B.C. Green playbook. Critics call it a say-anything message, referring to the Premier's own criticism of John Horgan early in the election campaign. The day began with the question of who would be Speaker to get this Parliament up and running finally resolved. To the surprise of many, Forest Minister Steve Thompson was dragged by tradition to the chair by the two House leaders. Present tradition plays a big part on throne speech days, and one is that the speech itself is long on rhetoric and short on specifics. But that tradition exploded today as the B.C. Liberals delivered a speech chock full of specific spending promises in all kinds of areas. They expect us to listen and find a way to work together. Among other things, the speech promised 60,000 new childcare spaces, 150,000 childcare subsidies, a new Royal Commission on Education, even strengthening tenants' rights. These changes are affordable with the province's strong fiscal position, without compromising our commitment to balanced budgets. There were well more than two dozen specific promises, including one to increase the carbon tax by $5 a tonne in 2019. Political donations are to be capped and reformed. There will be a referendum on electoral reform. And, as announced earlier, a $100 a month increase to social assistance rates. This last promise, like so many others, was specifically rejected by Clark in the election campaign. You know, a little bit more every month on social assistance doesn't really make it that much easier. I think our focus should be on spending that money through programs like the uh, Single Parent Employment Initiative. No one knows where he really stands on important issues. In the campaign, the B.C. Liberals constantly attacked NDP leader John Horgan for changing his position on various issues. And now Clark appears to be doing a lot of flip-flopping herself, but she says all these policy reversals are simply an example of listening to what the voters want. There are only two choices. One is to listen and one is to and, and do it differently, and one is to not listen and refuse to do things differently. And this throne speech is a result of that. Well, Keith Baldry joins us now live. Keith, this was quite the day, as I'm mm-hmm. sure you uh, can understand. The clock has started, in a manner of speaking. Yeah. So what's next? Yeah, the clock has started on the, uh, the death watch, basically, the B.C. Liberal government. So the MLA's return to the House here on Monday. Debate will begin on the throne speech itself. It'll be interesting to see how the NDP and Greens tackle this, because this throne speech basically is carbon copy of their own election platform. So we'll see how that debate goes. They will vote no against it on a, on a confidence vote that we now expect to take place next Thursday 
anything can happen, of course. Uh, all sorts of things are liable to change. But Thursday is the, the uh, day that is set for the vote on the confidence of the B.C. Liberal government. Uh, they're expected to lose that confidence. Christy Clark goes to government house, visits lieutenant governor, and she'll probably turn to John Horgan to form the next government. So we've got an interesting week ahead. We sure do. Okay, we'll check in again. Thanks very much. Keith Baldry live in Victoria. Well, as uh, Keith mentioned, uh, there is the B.C. Greens in all of this with just three elected members they walked into the legislature kingmakers today. Ted Chernecki has more on what lies ahead for that party and holding on to so much power, the burden they now carry. Here's a tip. Yeah, the handwritten ones are key. Handwritten letters to your MLA get attention. And the Greens are proving especially good at garnering attention. Suddenly their offices have staff and a budget. Look at the platform of the BC NDP. It's essentially our platform. Look at what the throne speech will be. It's essentially our platform. Just think of the history here. It is one thing to walk into this building as an elected member, but it's something else to come in here with power. I'm the eye of the storm, really, here. And yeah, it, it was, it was pretty, it's pretty heavy. Intimidating, that sounds of it. Uh, it is intimidating. It should be intimidating. Olson says he had a tough life growing up as a First Nations teenager, but he was always articulate. So perhaps it isn't surprising he ended up here. Wow. He just kept going, wow. That was the reaction of her brother as he watched her from the gallery this morning. Sonia Furstenau also comes here with an acute understanding of democracy. Her dad escaped communist East Germany as a child, but took her back behind the Iron Curtain years later. That cemented in me the sense of real responsibility, that I have a, a job, I have a responsibility as a citizen. All three Greens concede that they do have unusual powers, but they say they want to use them simply to keep all sides in constructive conversation. Meanwhile, two-thirds of the caucus won't have to operate anymore from a couch or kitchen table. My office was two tables in the corner of our living room, covered in paper with, you know, files around. So... I've, I've done my time in office purgatory. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm in office heaven. Ted Chernacki, Global News. A B.C. man has been identified as the suspect in a sexual assault in Ontario, and now investigators are hoping the public can help them track him down. Jennifer Palma is live in our newsroom now. Jen, this is particularly disturbing because investigators say he was impersonating a police officer, and it's believed he's committed similar offenses in other provinces. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Police in Alberta and Ontario are on the lookout for a 33-year-old Seashelt man. This is who they're looking for, Asif Chowdhury. Police say he also goes by the name Brandon. Calgary police also believe they're looking for Chowdhury and allege this man, pictured here, is pretending to be a cop who tried to rob a woman in that city on June 5th, but she resisted and he fled. Investigators believe he's responsible for similar robberies occurring this past March and April. Then a few days later in Ontario on June 8th, it's alleged the same person pretended to be an officer and sexually assaulted and robbed an 18-year-old female escort at a hotel. Here's what York Regional Police had to say. When he got to the hotel room to meet with, with the victim, he impersonated himself as a police officer. He basically uh, gave all the signs that he was a police officer. He had a piece of paper in his hand telling her that it was a warrant and that she was under arrest. And then from there went on to sexually assault her. Uh, he then took a bunch of cash that was in the room and drove away in his car. All right, Jen, there is reason to be concerned for other potential victims. Is uh, Chowdhury considered dangerous? Yeah, he absolutely is. Steve Chowdhury is considered armed and dangerous. There's a Canada-wide warrant out for his arrest. If you see him, don't approach him. Instead, contact your local police. Chris? All right, Jen Palma, thank you very much for that.
A technical rescue this morning at an Nanaimo High School after a teenager fell five meters or about 17 feet down an air intake shaft. It happened just after 9 a.m. at Dover Bay Secondary School. Witnesses say the grate was open when the boy fell in. He was taken to hospital with a fractured leg. The fall is now being investigated, but it's unclear at this point why the grate was open. In Squamish tonight, there's growing concern for wildlife. Locals say not enough is being done to stop bears from becoming habituated, and that's resulted in a mother bear and two cubs being euthanized. Jill Bennett's covering this story for us, and Jill, bring us up to speed on how this happened. Chris, this is the area where that sow and the two cubs were destroyed on Sunday, and some residents now are questioning if those deaths could have been prevented. Hear the baby cubs running up the tree, and then there was a second officer that was at the bottom of the tree that shot the bear cubs, which then fell out of the tree. Brianne Smith was walking her dog when she saw a mother bear run from a construction site into this wooded area. The bear and the two cubs were tranquilized and later destroyed. We had reports from the public that this bear had uh, attacked a dog in somebody's backyard. There were also reports the bear was feeding on garbage and teaching the cubs to do the same. A previous relocation attempt failed. I don't think it's fair. Uh, I think that we need to find better solutions for this problem. At this construction site, which backs onto the estuary, the acting project manager says the bear broke through the fence and ripped apart a plastic garbage can. Now they have a new, more secure one in place. It is secure. Yes, it is. Yeah. The sow and cubs were first spotted in Squamish in early June. Bear educators say part of the problem is once the animals find food, they keep coming back. You have uh, new people moving in, of course, that uh, may not be aware that we're in bear country and that there are bears. They haven't experienced them themselves. There are also concerns that as more of the area is developed, buildings are encroaching on wildlife. It's something that we take very seriously and we need to make sure as a district we've been uh, approving a lot of development in infill sites so that we are not sprawling out into the countryside. If it's determined human activity is to blame for habituating the sow and cubs, it's possible there will be penalties for those involved. And in recent years, we've increased the fine amounts that we can charge residents or businesses for having available attractants to bears. It's believed there are at least 25 active bears in the Squamish area. Since May of last year, there have been four bear-human contacts. The investigation into all of the factors that led to these three bears being destroyed is continuing. Chris? All right, Jill, thanks very much. And back to Vancouver now, where the city is launching some new policies around liquor laws starting next week. And not everyone is happy with the changes. They come into effect July 1st, and while things like extended hours for craft breweries are getting the thumbs up, businesses in the Granville Entertainment District are slamming the new rules about re-entry. Under the new policy, people will be prevented from re-entering clubs an hour before they close. This is to cut back on people loitering in the streets. The city reminding people today this is just a pilot program. We wanted to do it as a pilot to test it, see if it works, and if it doesn't, we won't continue it, and we'll try other strategies. And we really want to work with the different owners, um, bar owners, club owners, restaurants, to see what will work and what we can really do to mitigate the impact of the violence. B.C. is considered by many to be the epicenter of the opioid crisis in Canada. Back in February, the federal government gave the province $10 million to help fight the overdose epidemic. But as Sonia Deal found out, while the money has come and gone... The mayor at Ground Zero says nothing has changed. We need 
to come together as a country uh, to help our most vulnerable. Back in February, the federal government gave the province a cheque for $10 million, money desperately needed in BC to help deal with a health emergency spiralling out of control, money the mayor of Vancouver now says he hasn't seen. From what I've heard in the healthcare system, on the street, no one knows where that $10 million went. We're losing four people a day in BC right now, dying of overdose. And that in Vancouver, it's at least one a day uh, most weeks, so we're... Um, we're in, in a free fall. We pushed the health ministry for answers. Their response, that that $10 million is already in the system. And this is how they break it down. $7 million for increased access to opioid substitution therapies. $1.5 million to help open additional supervised consumption sites. 380000 to increase testing capacity at the provincial toxicology lab. 120000 for better surveillance and data. And $1 million in treatment and support for those transitioning back into the community from correctional facilities facilities. Mayor Gregor Robertson, though, is not convinced. That whole big list that they provided, that was already funded through BC government funding prior to the $10 million being allocated. And reaction from Karen Ward from the Vancouver area network of drug users to the health ministry's list? Uh, That is infuriating. People feel abandoned and left literally to to die. How is it making you feel as as the mayor? Well, it's atrocious. This, this is the most horrendous thing I've experienced as, as mayor for almost nine years now. While the mayor is holding the Liberal government accountable, it is worth remembering that he is a former NDP MLA who's maintained close ties with the party. With the real possibility that John Horgan could be premier by next week, the question is, will Robertson be just as critical? I'm keeping the pressure on already. I've met with John Horgan and I've let him know this needs to be a top priority. I'm encouraged to see his commitment that uh, he's taking this seriously. Sonia Diol, Global News. And more proof tonight the drug crisis isn't just affecting people. This is Wally and it's a small miracle she's still around. Rushed to the animal hospital after getting into something. What the veterinarian did to save her life and the warning to other pet owners in just over a minute. Bill Cosby walks, and now we know why, with one juror willing to explain what happened behind closed doors that led to a mistrial. That's later. And caught on surveillance camera, a traffic hazard no one was expecting. Don't worry, the child's going to be okay. The latest victim of B.C.'s opioid crisis, not who you'd expect. Wallace is an adorable seven-week-old puppy revived by a double dose of naloxone. As John Wah reports, it was the owner's admission that ultimately saved the dog. Gentleman brought this little puppy in, and this puppy was near death. This is the new unexpected face of the opioid crisis. So I went back to the owner and I said, look, I need to know, is there any possibility that this animal had gotten into narcotics? And he answered, yes. What kind? Fentanyl. The smallest amount able to do this to a full-grown adult. Imagine the effects on a six-week-old Shih Tzu weighing less than five pounds. I was there listening to the heart as it was slowing down, and I was looking at my staff like we were about to lose this puppy. Walton says by the owner telling the truth, they were able to quickly treat the dog with naloxone. 90% of the time, people lie to us about this, but this owner said yes. Wally is now in the care of someone else until his owner, who is homeless, can find a new place 
where the dog won't be exposed again. There isn't sufficient evidence to support recommending charges in this particular case, but absolutely steps have been taken to ensure that this dog does not go back to the same environment. The BC SPCA says exposure to animals was just a matter of time. Cases of fentanyl overdoses of pets in the province already matching the number for all of last year. If there's some spillage on the table, that's enough to push them over the edge. Instead of persecution, Walton is giving Wally's owner praise. Worried public backlash would push people to put their pets at risk by not telling the truth. It is the person who brought the dog in that saved that dog's life. This tiny dog beating some huge odds to survive such a deadly drug. John Hua, Global News. After years of struggling with falling sales, Sears Canada has officially gone into creditor protection. The company intends to close 59 stores nationwide and lay off 2,900 of its 17,000 employees. Five of those stores are in B.C., in Abbotsford, Kamloops, Creston, Sechelt, and Grand Forks. Sears told Global News today they'll honor all existing warranties on products they've sold in Canada. The new streamlined Sears will drop long-standing lines like appliances and auto parts and launch a new low-cost designer clothing line. They also plan to beef up their online presence, an area some retail analysts have faulted the company for falling way behind on. Consumers who want to stay connected while they shop and dine can now do so in Yaletown without racking up big data charges. The Yaletown Business Improvement Association launching Vancouver's first network of free street Wi-Fi and solar-powered charging stations. Visitors will be able to stay connected and not worry about those roaming charges. For tourists, when you don't want to ah, use for, your for data, yeah, it's, it's good. It's a good yeah, thing. It's really cool. yeah. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. I'm not from Vancouver, so yeah, yeah it's oh. pretty cool. Those data charges that they're saving on, they get to enjoy and spend on the amazing restaurants and boutique shops in Yaletown. A BC couple waiting for a life-saving call. Makes me want to work harder to do the best I can. He needs a double lung transplant and now another devastating blow, but help is on the way. And he's known to be an outspoken member of the royal family, but has Prince Harry gone too far this time? A B.C. family forced to travel to Ontario for an organ donation just received some terrible news that has nothing to do with the treatment. They found out their home burned down. But instead of despairing, they are blown away by the support of strangers helping them pull through. Lama Nicholas reports. <laughs> 40-year-old Corey Bradshaw has cystic fibrosis. He doesn't have a lot of time and is waiting for a double lung transplant. Two false alarms, if you will, but uh, hopefully the third one's a charm. <laughs> That's the first thing you notice about him, his laugh and sense of humor and a sense of optimism, something he shares with his wife Renee. We don't really think of our situation as being that negative, you know. We, we, we have a good life together. So we like to, uh, um, you know, just focus on that. The Bradshaws are in Toronto waiting for a life-saving call, which they say could take much longer in B.C. The last thing they needed was word their home in Kelowna has been destroyed by a fire. At first, they couldn't believe it until they saw pictures online. And I was like trying to look for the good in it like no maybe it's not maybe there's just it looks like it is and like no that's our truck and just it's like i'm starting to see it now i could it's like oh boy they believe that it was from a discarded cigarette that caught our 
our, our cedar hedge on fire, which spread to the shed and to the house. In less than a day, their neighbors rallied. Everything. They've lost everything. I feel really bad right now. The couple has to pay rent in Toronto and a mortgage in B.C. One woman they hardly know started a GoFundMe page. So it's super nice of her to to do that. They say things can be replaced and they're enjoying each other's company knowing so many people have their back. Makes me want to work harder to do the best I can, kind of for them, if you will, and come through and, yeah, it's it's great. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. They're hoping their story will inspire others to sign up for organ donation. Lama Nicola, Global News. And we'll follow up on the Bradshaw story. Well, it was a pretty special first pitch at the Nooner at the Nat today. That is little Dylan, the five-year-old son of our own reporter, Catherine Urquhart. Dylan threw the ball, and then he was off. The Vancouver Canadiens' first Nooner of the season is in support of the Pacific Autism Family Network, which supports individuals with autism spectrum disorder and their families across the province. Nearly $1,700 was raised from the 50-50 alone. Way to go, Dylan. And congratulations, Catherine and Chris. The Vancouver Art Gallery unveiled its new outdoor space just in time for summer. The newly developed North Plaza includes new features like more seating, and it is missing one notable feature. The fountain was removed, making the space much more open for special events. The $9.6 million project is about four months behind schedule. Thanks to this winter's rainy weather, the city hoping it becomes a central place to gather again. This is absolutely our town square. It's on our main street. It's got one of the most beautiful buildings in the city right in the middle of it. And everybody knows that there's a place to gather. This is a great place to do it. On the topic of impressive developments, Metro Vancouver's most expensive home just hit the market. Check out what $63 million can buy you. It's a 22,000-square-foot Point Grey home. It's the masterpiece of philanthropist Joe and Rosalie Siegel. It features five bedrooms, 12 bathrooms, an elevator, an indoor pool, and a six-car garage. Not to mention an in-law suite with a private entrance. It's been their life's work, and Mr. Siegel told Global News Today they're hoping to sell it to someone who will appreciate it. No secret to why he's selling. Says it's time to downsize. So if you're shopping the luxury listings, you can find this one at Sotheby's. Well, we finally have an answer about the Comey tapes, a surprising admission from President Trump after his threatening tweet suggesting conversations with the former head of the FBI might have been recorded. And a desperate rescue, what one aid worker did to save a little girl's life in Mosul. We should warn you right now, some of the images in our next story will be disturbing for some viewers. A dramatic rescue caught on video in Iraq. With soldiers providing covering fire, former U.S. Special Forces soldier David Eubank, who's now an aid worker, braved ISIS gunfire to rescue a young girl. He spotted her stranded among the many bodies of civilians who'd been shot by a sniper and managed to get her back to safety. Apparently, she is now in the care of an Iraqi general who plans to adopt her. Amazing video. Tropical Storm Cindy has now made landfall, crashing first into southwest Louisiana this morning. Pray that everybody's okay. The storm spawned water spouts and torrential rain 
dumping more than 30 centimeters in some places. A twister scattered a lot of debris in Alabama. And a 10-year-old boy was killed when waves rolled a big log over top of him. Millions of people are still in the storm's path as the system pushes further inland. President Trump took to social media once again, this time to admit there are no tapes of his private conversations with former FBI Director James Comey. This comes after weeks of speculation, much of it fueled by Trump himself. Tonight, more than a month after a mystery he made himself, President Trump's putting it to rest, revealing he has no tapes of talks with the FBI director he fired. In a carefully phrased tweet, he writes, I did not make and do not have any such recordings, six weeks after implying he might have. Quote, James Comey better hope that there are no tapes of our conversations before he starts leaking to the press. Why the game? Uh, I don't know there was a game. No games and no regrets, his spokesperson says, about the original tweet, which set off a 41-day stretch unlike any other in a modern presidency. The tweet, May 12th, led James Comey to give his memos, he says, to a friend that following Monday to share publicly, hoping that would trigger a special counsel. It did, May 17th. And now, according to a former intelligence official, an investigation into whether the president tried to obstruct justice in his conversations with Comey. Tapes could have helped prove it or not. Lordy, I hope there are tapes. The president and his team letting the question dangle for days. Are there tapes, sir? Oh, you're going to be very disappointed when you hear the answer. The president has nothing further to add on that. Nothing further on that. When he's ready to, to make that announcement, we'll let you know. In the he said, he said battle between the two and which story has more legitimacy, Director Comey has memos to back up these conversations. He documented it in almost real time. Now, another question, as the president suggests spying concerns, downplayed by his aides, tweeting about recently reported electronic surveillance, adding, I have no idea whether there are recordings of his Comey conversations. Prince Harry has done it again. He's making headlines for his latest frank comments. Harry told Newsweek he doesn't think any member of the royal family really wants to be king or queen, but they all carry out their duties for the greater good of the people. And he also criticized the decision to force him to walk behind his mother's coffin in 1997 at the age of 12, saying no child should be asked to do that under any circumstances and that it wouldn't happen today. A troubling new statistic in health matters tonight has doctors warning us about an often overlooked health threat. Alcohol has become the third leading cause of death globally. And a new report warns that unless we start paying more attention, it'll only get worse. Nadia Stewart reports. With the arrival of summer comes late night drinks and patio season. But for those not tracking how many pints or glasses they're downing, health experts say now might be a good time to start. Alcohol is a growing health and social issue. It's gone from the up to the third leading cause of death and disability globally, and that's up from being six. In Canada, increased alcohol consumption is having an impact. A new report from the Canadian Institute for Health Information found that from 2015 to 2016, there were more hospitalizations for alcohol than for heart attacks. And here in BC... Consumption in BC is going up faster, three times faster than the rest of Canada at the moment. Experts say a healthy economy is leading to unhealthy lifestyle choices. 
The healthier an economy, uh, the more people are consuming, by and large. Alcohol is killing more people than opioid drugs, but we're not blaming the, the alcohol for it. We take alcohol for granted, and we are perhaps in a little bit of denial about some of the, the massive level of the harm that it's causing. Concerns over the consequences of more easily available alcohol prompting Vancouver Coastal Health to push back against grocery store liquor sales. Because we see increased availability, we're quite concerned that we'll continue to see rising rates of harms, including more hospitalizations in B.C. And certainly grocery sales might be one way that that we might fuel that increase. Experts say the key is moderation and knowledge. Speaking with a family doctor about how much you should or should not be drinking per week and understanding the effects alcohol has on the body. The CIHI report will be updated regularly to see whether or not Canadians are getting the message. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Karma on a California highway. (gasps) What happens when a car tries to run a motorbike off the road? And the shocking end of the Bill Cosby trial, one juror's explanation for why it happened. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Caught on video, road rage on a busy California highway, and wait till you see the chain reaction. That's coming up right after weather with Christy Gordon, who joins us now. And looks like we're heading into another beautiful evening, Christy. Oh, yes. Not a single cloud in the sky, as you can see there. Yes, beautiful week, um, evening and weekend. Uh, the first full weekend of summer, and it's going to be spectacular. But there's one part of the province that won't see the sunshine that the rest of us will. I'll show you that in a second. 19 degrees was our high, not nearly as warm as what we were anticipating. And the reason for that is we continued with a general northwest flow across that region that helps it keep it cooler. And the reason is that that high-pressure ridge hasn't shifted inland just yet. You can see that northwest flow across our area. But once it does, which it will begin to happen tomorrow and in particular into our Saturday and our Sunday, that's when the real heat will kick in. We continue with sunshine right through our weekend. Uh, Here's a look at uh, the REMAX satellite though, because not all areas are enjoying the sunshine. A little bit of instability through the BC Peace River area. That will continue for you tomorrow, but it's only a slight chance tomorrow. So isolated pockets with a risk of a thunderstorm. And meanwhile, it's the north coast that will We'll start to see this system push in. So that ridge of high pressure protecting much of the province, but it arcs just into your area. So come the weekend, you'll see more cloud and showers push in. But meanwhile, the rest of the province will enjoy the sunshine. Uh, for the most part, though, tomorrow looking terrific across the north coast. So use your tomorrow, 18 near the water, 23 inland, 23 degrees in Prince George and Quinell with sunshine, straight sunshine across southern regions as well, hitting 30 degrees in Kamloops tomorrow and in Mar- 29 through a Soyuz. Inland regions for Metro Vancouver, close to 28 degrees, and that includes the Fraser Valley. So a range for Metro Vancouver, certainly cooler by the water at 23 degrees. East coast of Vancouver Island enjoying 26 degrees. Port Alberni, you'll see 25, 26 degrees as well. There's your five-day forecast. So this upper-level ridge will shift onshore through the weekend, heat things up, but then late in the weekend, sort of towards our Monday, it starts to break down. However, we don't have any major rain in the forecast. It's just that we'll start to see a bit 
more cloud cover and cooler temperatures. Happy birthday to Elizabeth Grote. She turned 100 today and Mabel Graham turned 103 and celebrating 70 years together. Esther and Canute Manneke celebrating that in North Vancouver. Tonight's weather window sent to us by Nelson Winterburn. Uh, he and his wife traveled up to Bella Coola and caught this uh, beautiful shot of two bear cubs. Believe it or not, those are cubs. Hard to believe because they look massive, but uh, majestic creatures, aren't they? It's getting bigger from there. All right. Mm. Thanks very much. What a shot. Thanks, Nelson. Police in California are looking for a motorcyclist accused of setting off a shocking case of road rage. <gasps> the incident all caught on camera. The person on the bike kicks a vehicle, but the driver of the car retaliates and loses control, triggering a wild chain reaction crash. One person was injured after the truck flipped. You can see the motorcycle speed off in the video. Officers say the incident is being investigated as a hit and run. And check out this close call in China. Surveillance video showing the moment a toddler hops off a motorcycle that stopped at an intersection and runs right across a busy multi-lane road. Thankfully, an alert police officer was nearby, swoops in, and just in time, scoops up the two-year-old, handing him back to the guy on the bike. I don't know what's more dangerous, running out into traffic or on the road. a two-year-old on a motorbike. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, that's, that, that part's a little odd. It With is no awesome. helmet. With no helmet. Yeah. No. Yeah. Apparently but there, are, there are no rules there. Apparently. No, that's right. Yes. What have you been working on? Well, you know, we got the draft coming up tomorrow. I know we've been talking a lot about draft, but when your team in the town that you live in does not have a good year, that's all you have to look forward to, yeah. right? right? Until the next season. That's okay. It. So all things being equal, what would the Canucks really like to get in tomorrow's draft? I would like to add a playmaking center iceman. So with that in mind, we'll look at four middlemen the Canucks might select tomorrow. Also tonight, what happened behind closed doors at the Cosby trial? One juror breaks his silence. Thinking ahead to next hockey season, not a deep draft coming up. No, it's, there's no you know, big player at the top like there was last year and in the McDavid year. And even last year when the Canucks came up at fifth, a lot of people wanted them to take Matthew Kachuk. I wanted them to take Matthew mm-hmm. Kachuk. And I remember at the draft party, there was a real, ugh, when they took Ole Olevi. Not that they hate Yolevi, they just wanted Matthew Kachuk. There is no guy like that tomorrow. There's a whole bunch of guys the Canucks could take, and I don't know, unless you're a real diehard, that there'll be a collective, let's get this guy. Mm-hmm. But we'll see what happens tomorrow. Uh, first of all, though, perhaps it's a Canada 150 thing, but the Canucks are going to have a bit of a different start to the coming season. They released a schedule today. The first four games of the season will all be at home. The first game is October 7th against Edmonton, but the first four games are all against Canadian teams. Edmonton, Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Calgary. That's how the Canucks will start the season. We put this list out to show you some of the, the games that will get a lot of attention, and it's in chronological order. There you see Pittsburgh's visit will be early in the season. Toronto's coming in early December. Montreal on December 19th. Chicago, Nashville are going to make a couple of stops here. Uh, Vegas will make a couple of stops here as well, but we also put in Boston and the Rangers' visit. So as we just said, there's no Connor McDavid, there's no Austin Matthews type in tomorrow's NHL draft. But somebody, likely more than just one, will emerge as an all-star down the road. The trick is, of course, figuring out who that all-star is going to be when it's your turn to pick. The Canucks pick fifth overall. They could go defense like they did last year. But with Henrik Sedin in the autumn of his years, they need a middleman soon. The top ten players of this year's draft, there's... 
probably, you know, five real good playmaking center icemen. Well, he has an NHL body already. He's a big, strong kid. His ability to protect the puck from the top of the circles down and get to the net and get shots on net is, you know, he plays a, a pro-style game already. He's a player that coaches are going to love right when he comes in because he has a mature defensive game where he's he's good in his own end he's good through the neutral zone and he's a he's a playmaker like he makes plays with the puck he has you know his touches uh his execution level is is high and you know he makes players around him better Uh, you know, when you watch him play, he's a dynamic player. Like his ability to, you know, skate with the puck through the neutral zone. Um, he's a shifty player. He's got a good release on a shot. He's a he's a type of player that he can create uh, skill kind of out of nothing, right? So he's dynamic. He he's got good vision of the ice too. He's good on the power play. Um, you know, but he's a highly skilled player. He, he's a guy from the top of the circles down is excellent. Like he's, you know, how you see players that stand in front of the net and screen goalies with his size. But he's got great hand-eye coordination where he tips pucks, he, uh, he's on rebounds. Um, you know, that's the strength of his game. And, you know, it's, it's hard to find those guys. Kind of pulling for middle stat. Kind of. I like his hands. He's uh, never been wrong. That is true. I have never <laughs> been wrong. <laughs> Except that one time. Oh, and those other 300 times. Uh, forget the trade deadline. The real deal for real deal-making time is right now during draft week. And this morning, a relatively good-sized move happened when the Oilers sent forward Jordan Eberle to the Islanders for forward Ryan Strom. Now, Strom was a fifth overall pick in 2011. That means the Oilers now have three of the top five picks. That year, Nugent Hopkins, Larson, and now Strom. As for Everly, he did nothing in the playoffs for Edmonton after scoring 20 goals in the regular season. The Oilers do save $3.5 million in salary with this trade. CFL open tonight. Lions start their season Saturday at home against Edmonton. It's Montreal. It's Saskatchewan. It's Darian Durant. B.J. Cunningham. 65 yards. TD. 14-13, Montreal in the third. Jays played a day game against the Rangers. The 1-0 on its way. Well, it didn't go so well. Jays fell behind 7-0. Kendris Morales scores two here. So Toronto's now within three. But uh, they couldn't come all the way back. They just can't get to 500, this team, no matter what they do. They just cannot get to 500. Soft one there, and it is hit a long way. That by Carlos Gomez made sure Texas won this game 11 4. Toronto's record is 35 and 37. NBA draft tonight from New York. 
Washington Huskies guard Markel Fultz, who we said would go number one, went number one to the 76ers. And then Lonzo Ball to the Lakers. The team is dad. There's his dad right there. Said he would go to. He was right. Lakers take him. The Raptors have yet to make their pick. Confederations Cup. Those are nice uniforms. Cameroon. Andre Zambo, Aguisa. And now he'll score against Australia. Oh, that is clever, is it not? That made a 1-0. Then there was a PK for Mark Milligan for Australia. He puts another shrimp on the barbie. And 1-1 is the final. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't heard that. Have you heard that one for that years? One for that's, uh, that's, that's an old Paul that's Hogan, yeah. Germany-Chile tied 1-1 as well at the Confederations Cup. All right. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. Here's Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News tonight at 11. Jay? Thank you, Chris. You talked about that $63 million mansion, a rather sizable price tag. Do you think they're going to have a problem selling it? I don't think that that's going to be a problem. Um, I think someone special that is appreciator of art and that caliber of home, especially for entertaining, um, will, will find the house. Okay, we talked to the company selling the Seagull home in Vancouver's Posh Point Grey neighborhood. We'll tell you a little more about the property, that and the rest of the day's news coming up tonight at 11, Chris. All right, sounds good. Thanks very much, Jay. And it was a trial everyone was watching. It didn't look good for Bill Cosby. So how did it end up in a mistrial? One juror speaks next. Coming up on ET Canada, Bill Cosby's new tour about sexual assault, plus Will Ferrell on why he had to make his new comedy for grown-ups, and how Fifth Harmony is coping and thriving as a foursome. That's all coming up at 7, right after the news hour, and right now, it's back to you, Chris. All right, Rick, thanks very much. A lot of talk about Bill Cosby. For the first time tonight, we're hearing from a juror in the sexual assault trial, speaking out about the drama that took place behind closed doors and why they were unable to reach a verdict, leading the judge to declare a mistrial. Today, a member of the jury in the Bill Cosby trial describes what it was like during emotional deliberations that lasted longer than the trial itself. And the tears came towards the end. It was so tense. The juror spoke with NBC station WPXI, asking not to be identified. He says the jury was split up the middle. It was hopeless. It was from the first time on. Deadlocked on whether or not Bill Cosby sexually assaulted Andrea Constand in his home in 2004. The case boiled down to credibility. This juror says he believed Cosby and questioned Constand's intentions. Very, very honest from his side. You could believe from his, from his testimony what he did, but not from hers. He doubted expert testimony that said it was totally reasonable for a victim to delay reporting a sexual assault. Andrea Constand waited a year before going to police. It's hard for me to believe that I've been injured and it takes me a year to report it. The juror says a retrial would be a waste of money. Whatever the man did, he has already paid his price. But this is just one juror, one opinion. Others disagreed. And the DA says he will retry the case. The prosecution now has a roadmap of what went wrong, but time seldom favors the prosecution. As time goes on, it's harder to convince a jury something happened.